people don't realize is that the Department of Defense spends up to four years training somebody to do their military job, but less than one week to get that person trained to become a civilian again. Manufacturing in the U.S. today is fading. The median age of the workforce is 58 years old, and there are 2.3 million advanced manufacturing jobs unfilled due to lack of skilled labor. Workshops for Warriors is the only accredited school in the United States of America that trains, certifies, and places veterans and wounded warriors into advanced manufacturing careers. Since 2008, we have 100% of our graduates placed and retained in full-time jobs. We are data-driven in that we create opportunities for students to become graduates, graduates to become part of America's workforce. At first, I just wanted to get a basic engineering degree. Now that I see all the different types of specialized equipment, specialized skills, there's a lot more out there that I now know I can learn. I did one class here, passed my certification, and within a couple weeks, I was able to land a job where I went from $9 an hour to $17.50 an hour. Here in San Diego, there's a large need for industrial personnel, but there's no education pipeline to get them certified. So I spent many years looking for those individuals. And with Workshops for Warriors, I found it. There are a lot of organizations out there that are trying to help veterans today. I honestly can think of none that are more worthy than Workshops for Warriors for people to invest their money in right now. Workshops for Warriors faces challenges every day, but I'm motivated by the fact that we can create significant opportunities as a result of these challenges. We have supporters, staff, students that are going to help us become the world's best advanced manufacturing training facility. And that's what counts. That's what the end goal is. We all love veterans, but loving a veteran doesn't make them a good welder, or a fabricator, or a machinist. And if you're a Boeing or Lockheed Martin, you need somebody that can put that aircraft together, and that's what we teach. And this is the opportunity, this is the time to do it, and it's as a result of people like you that we can make this happen. Hello, Metalworking Nation. We're happy to have you with us, listening to us today. We want you to know that we are here for you and that this is the podcast to equip you manufacturing leaders. So what we have coming up in this episode is that Jim and I are going to interview Hernan Luis Iprado, the founder of Workshops for Warriors. Jim and I had been looking forward to this interview from the very beginning of Making Chips. Neither Jim or I served in the military, but we have great respect for those who would volunteer their lives for their brothers and sisters and for freedom. There comes a time in the life of many military veterans where they enter civilian life. Some are more equipped or trained for a career than others. Hernan started Workshop for Warriors in order to tackle several issues, the high rate of suicide among veterans, a promising career path for veterans, and meeting the demands for employment among advanced manufacturing companies. So here's our interview. Yeah, enjoy it. Hey, Jim, one of my customers was telling me the other day that his material provider will laser cut the material to his finishes. Have you heard about this process? 
Yeah. Oh, sure. Absolutely. I have. As you know, one of my preferred material vendors is ThyssenKrupp Family of Material Providers. They offer all types of value-added services, one of which is laser cutting. It's a low-cost way to remove material before it hits my shop floor. Well, can that process hold close tolerances? It can. Laser cutting can typically hold about plus or minus five thousandths when it cuts plate. Depends on the material thicknesses and the type of materials being cut, but I would say overall the industry standard is about plus or minus five thousandths. So, what would be the advantage of having ThyssenKrupp laser cut your material? Well, it's all about print to product and the speed to getting there, getting the material in in the most pre-finished condition you can before we start machining. If ThyssenKrupp can laser cut my material to size, cut some pockets in, or even cut some angular linear dimensions like chamfers at a better cost than I can machine, it's a win-win situation for me. Great. Now I understand it. So how do the buyers out there get their material laser cut from ThyssenKrupp? Well, I would have our listeners reach out to their inside or outside salespersons. ThyssenKrupp has uh, many material divisions. We've chatted about OnlineMetals.com, but the other family material company I use is Copper and Brass Sales. I have an inside and outside salesperson there that is very knowledgeable about all their value-added services. Wow, that's interesting. Well, I learned something today. So our listeners can actually go to the ThyssenKrupp website by going to makingchips.com slash TKM, and they can see what other types of value-added services that ThyssenKrupp offers. Hello, Metalworking Nation. My name is Jason Zenger, and we are coming to you from San Diego, California. And I'm here in our remote studio with Jim Carr. And we also have a special guest with us today. Hey, Jason. How you doing? I'm doing great. Good. Last day in San Diego. Last huh? day in San Diego. Where I go catch a flight? I know. I know. <laughs> well, we can't. We got We got to keep yeah. uh, cognizant of the time. Yeah. I think it's going to be good. I think we got some good content here. I'm really excited about this podcast. This is what I've been most excited about coming yeah. to San Diego. Yeah, I know. And uh, based on what I just learned uh, about this fantastic association here, um, I I think it's going to be a compelling story, and I'm I'm really excited to get started. So why don't you introduce our guest? Absolutely. So we're, we're here in uh, San Diego, and we have a VIP guest in our remote on-site facility here. Uh, I have Hernan Luis Iprado, and he is the president at the Workshop for Warriors. Workshop for Warriors is a veterans-only CNC training association. Hernan is the founder of it. He started it back in March of 2008. He also is the president of WFW Industries, which is a machine shop here on-site. Before that, he also was in the U.S. Navy. Thank you for having us in your facility today and learning a little bit more about what you guys are doing. I think it's going to be uh, really exciting and uh, compelling to, to hear what's going on here. So welcome. Welcome, Hernan. Well, thank you, Jim. Thank you, Jason. I really appreciate having you all out here. And I know it must be terrible for you to be here right next to the water. In yeah, yeah, San yeah, Diego. Beautiful San Diego. The most beautiful it. city in the U.S., yeah, right? I agree. I don't know. I, I'm a big Chicago fan, so I would argue with you. But but it, but it is beautiful here in San Diego. How I agree. About the second week of December, we we do that again. I love the snow, though. You know, yeah. snowball fights. You know, all that kind of fun <laughs> stuff. So, Ernan, why don't you um, tell us a story of how you started Workshop for Warriors, and maybe even go as far back as your service? Okay, I'd be happy to. One is um, I actually enlisted in the United States Navy from Paris, France. And one of the things that made me go into the U.S. military is that 
the U.S. military is the only service in the history of humanity that's never systematically engaged in plundering, rape, or genocide. And I thought that that was an organization that I could get behind. So I actually enlisted from France into the U.S. Navy, and I enlisted into the U.S. Navy as a hospital corpsman. And I had the good fortune to be attached to Marine Corps units. And I love my time with the Marine Corps, and I think if there are any Marines out there, you know that it's a very, very tight brotherhood between the Marines and their corpsmen, and it's it's really, really tough to get us away from each other, and it's a, it's a lifelong bond. So when I became an officer later on, so I was an enlisted sailor before as a corpsman. I was with the Marine Corps 27 Golf Company over in 29 Palms. But I love the Navy. I love my time with the Navy. And I really grew very, very close to my friends. But more importantly, I think it, you know, the U.S. doesn't have mandatory military service. The rest of the world, or most of it, does. So it's this rare opportunity for you to kind of get, um, get an accelerated civic education. Because you're really doing something to support the Constitution. You're doing something for your fellow Americans that you know, we really are like the one percenters. If you think about it, less than one percent of the people in the U.S. have ever served in the military. But they're out there defending people. And they're out there doing things every single day that puts their lives on the line for people that don't even know about it, don't understand. I was very, very happy to have done that. I'd do it again in a heartbeat. But it drew me really, really close to the my fellow service members and it gave me greater appreciation of what kind of my role was, what I had a responsibility to do, and my that I was accountable not only to myself but to our society for things. And when I became an officer, I came back from my first combat tour in Iraq in 2003, and I saw one of my friends that I had literally grown up with in the Marine Corps Maybe two months earlier, we had been in Iraq together, and here he was, this like picture of youth and vitality and literally a picture-perfect Marine. And two months later, my wife and I were in this little mall in Washington, D.C. area, and I saw this guy, John, with his girlfriend, and he said, Hey, Doc, uh, I'd like you to, to be at my wedding. And... I said, well, why don't you get up and give me a hug? And he goes, I, I can't, Doc. I, I, I lost my legs. And it hadn't even occurred to me. Now, I just saw him two months ago, and I was just looking at his face, and it didn't even occur to me that him being in a wheelchair was a permanent condition. It, it just didn't, you know, I, it was so hard to think that that was a guy that I knew that I, you know, we'd grown up wrestling. I mean, we, it was really, really tough. And if you ever have children, you know that moment where you think you're a tough, invincible person, and then all of a sudden, somebody threatens your nine-year-old daughter, and there is nothing in the world that you would not do yeah, amen. to fix that. There is nothing in the world that you would not do to, to prevent your child from getting hurt. There's nothing in the world that you would do to make sure that they're safe. And I told my wife, you know, I said, of course, Jenna, we're happy to be there. And as soon as he left, you know, here I was, combat veteran. I, I, um, <laughs> I, I can anticipate what you're going to say. Super squad guy. And I, my, my knees gave out on me. Mm -hmm. So I'm as sure. John left, I just sank to the floor. And, and I kind of grabbed onto my wife and said, we're going to do something. And I said, we're, we're going to figure it out. 
I'm going to have to get out of the Navy and I need your help. And by what me needing your was, help. What year was that? Early? I was in 2003 and I was working at the Naval Observatory for Mr. Cheney at the time. And it was unbelievable that I'd go into this hospital, these hospitals and see wounded warrior after wounded warrior. And there was just, they, everyone was trying what they could do. So it's really easy to say people are incompetent or they were malicious. I wouldn't attribute to malice anything that could be attributed to either ignorance or just being overwhelmed. And people, everyone was trying to do the right thing. But it cost $50,000 to up arm or a Humvee. And that's the same amount of money it would take to put a prosthetic leg in. And it's the same amount of money it would cost to transfer someone over from the East Coast to West Coast. So it was a big, sticky, messy problem. And it was, it was just really challenging. So it was that moment with one of your brothers that you saw that there was a need to um, um, really give back to the community. Empower. Yeah. Empower. Yeah. So we actually just got done um, taking a tour of your facility. And one of the things that, that was pointed out to us is that you, you guys have actually have outfitted welding equipment for veterans that are in wheelchairs. Yes. So we have a couple. In fact, we have 13 patents last year. Wow, that's great. For this year. Uh, that are on the books. We've been able to do a lot of uh, assistive technology so that when veterans come into our school, there's no excuse for them to get the training and the certifications that they need. There's yeah, none. because I mean, they've given their their limbs for the country and, and for us not to do something about that and for them to be equipped and, and for the, to make them feel like they have a value to society and they have a value to their families. I mean, that's just huge, you know, and that's that's great that you guys have been able to do that. We have a phenomenal team here and... I call this school the school that America built because we are so fortunate in that people have made the decision to actually do something to help. We've got American companies, American tooling, American suppliers that are all helping us get this, you know, Vet 2.0, we call them the 18 to 34 year old veterans, get Vet 2.0 reintegrated into America's advanced manufacturing army. We, we say all the time, right? We're, we're rebuilding American manufacturing one veteran at a time. If you think about the amount of initiatives out there to get high school or elementary school kids into manufacturing, that's great. But like Jeff Metz, he's the uh, president of Doubting Industries, he said, we're dead and we don't even know it. And when I pressed him on that, he said, in Michigan alone, 40% of his workforce is going to be gone, retired in the next four years. Right. Yeah, it's a huge issue. Oh, and it's yeah. something that we talk about all the, all time, the time on the podcast. Yeah. And we're going to continue to talk about that as well, because it's a big issue. Right. So you had this moment where you said to your wife, we need to do something. So how did it go from that moment when you're in Washington, D.C. to saying we're going to open up a manufacturing training facility for in veterans San, in San Diego here? Yeah. Well, we started off in my garage in McLean, Virginia, and it was, you know, most Marines are not they're not touchy-feely guys. I'd say most of them. And so as I was going through the hospital, some of my Marines would say, hey, Doc, how you doing? We'd meet up again. And I didn't know they were there. They didn't know I was there. And I'd invite them over to my house. And of course, we'd invariably congregate to the garage where there were some power tools. And they'd say, hey, Doc, do you mind if we can hang out at your house during the day? Because it's just soul crushing for a young Marine to be stuck in a hospital, staring at the ceiling. 23 hours a day for that one hour of physical therapy that they totally need. Totally get it. Yeah. So they'd come over to the house and they'd say, Hey doc, can we, you know, can you get us a mill? Hey doc, can you get us a drill? And I, I wasn't really into manufacturing. I was an electrical engineer by training and I've been a tinker since birth. I think I was electrocuted the first time at 18 months old, but 
So kids, if you're out there, screwdrivers don't go straight into the no, outlet. They don't. <laughs> they, no, don't they don't go in there. That, that's a little painful. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, but after a while, my wife, who's a survey methodologist and statistician and the smartest person I know, said, "Hey, these um, we need to do something that's more organized because it, having a whole bunch of Marines over your house." playing with power tools is not a good thing. So you don't want it to turn into a VFW with power tools. And we wanted to make sure that we were able to kind of channel this exposure to tooling in a way that resulted in some type of test or credential that tested objectively the retention and application of knowledge. And we needed to do it in a compressed fashion because veterans aren't like a 16-year-old kid. You can't pay them eight bucks an hour every month or every hour and think, oh, they'll be fine. For $1,600 a month, they'll be fine. They have mortgages. They have kids in college. They have houses. They have debt. So when you train, you, you pull some guy off the battlefield or gal that was making $4,500 a month, and then all of a sudden they're making $1,200 a month. That's tough. That's very tough. You, you can't just call your mortgage company and no, your car companies and we, say, we take half this right. month. <laughs> right. We need the that car to get the kids to school, but I guess can't afford to pay you for it anymore. Right. You know, we, we spend so much time as a country training our military, and I, I would imagine that we, we spend very little time equipping them once they're out, once they're civilians. We probably spend very little time with that. So is it, can you tell us something about that? Well, yes, but again, it's really easy to bludgeon several different people or organizations or politicians about that. But to be fair, the Department of Defense is built for one mission, and that's to put warheads on foreheads. It's supposed to go out, beat people up, take their stuff, and come back to the U.S. That's the goal of the Department of Defense. It's not to turn happy to glad. It's not a social experiment. It's to go where they're needed, demolish the enemy, win, and come back. They have a particular mission, and that's why you created Workshop for Warriors, because you felt that there was another mission that comes after they come back and they become civilians. Absolutely. Now, don't get me wrong. There's definitely a huge need to transition, because... Department of Defense will spend you know two years preparing somebody for combat or for their role in the military, maybe a week to transition them to become a civilian again. Right. So I think now, particularly in these kind of financially uncertain times and when there are more and more financial constraints, there's more of a pressing need between the Department of Labor, Department of Education, and Department of Defense to say, well, holistically, if a service member is going to leave the service and then they're going to cost Department of Labor $80,000 in unemployment benefits and then they're going to cost the penal system $180,000 to incarcerate and then they're going to cost the Department of Health, then there are significant savings to be had if you're able to transition them in a more orderly manner, I think. Sure. So I, I just want to uh, yeah, reiterate a little bit. So I watched that video, by the way, just before we came in and, and started uh, recording on mic, and I thought it was very powerful when you said that you had returned and you said most of your colleagues were suicidal and on drugs. Can you elaborate a little bit about that? Because I think that was part of what this whole program was about that inspired you to get to get involved and get excited and start this all up. Again, I'd, I'd bring to you or I'd challenge you or your listeners to this. If you... You know, you're a young 21-year-old Marine, and you're at the top of your game, and then you get your legs amputated. Your wife and your two little kids are on the West Coast. You're on the East Coast. And a week goes by. You can't see your spouse. Two weeks go by. And the doctors come in, and they say, hey, next week, son, you're going home. Next week. 
So another two weeks go by, your 19-year-old spouse is calling you, hey, sweetheart, when can we see you? I'd like, I want to see you. I need to see you. You don't have enough money to bring your whole family over to the East Coast. You can't move because you're incapacitated. You don't have official orders, so you can't make your wife break her lease and then move to D.C., which is very expensive, or vice versa. And month after month after month goes by like this. And in your mind, you're thinking, oh, yeah, my wife married me or for whatever reason, whatever it is that makes you the person that you were, that gets called into question. And it drove these guys crazy. And they handle it as best they could. So the, the terrible tragedy of it is that you wound up having more veterans dying of drugs in D.C. Right. than of bombs in Baghdad, which wow. is terrible. So, so when, when you felt that, Arnon, you said, man, I got to turn this around. I got to give them a second chance. I need to build something here in San Diego to, to really get this moment and get, get people inspired about careers and opportunities and making money and leadership. So you came to San Diego and said what? Well, you clearly don't understand my leadership style, which is <laughs> not, <laughs> not, not nearly as nice, trust me. <laughs> I, I'm trying to learn it really quickly. No, but in short, I was in D.C. We started off on a little location. We started off on these little storage units, and we basically had grew it. So we started one storage unit that I'd rented out. I'd fill it full of equipment. Then it was two. Then it was three. And all the while, I was on active duty. So I kept moving from Virginia to Newport, Rhode Island, to Virginia, Mississippi, Rhode Island, Virginia. And every time it would take, you know, from one truckload full of equipment to two tractor trailers to three, et cetera. So we actually started off our facility in Washington, D.C., or in the outskirts in McLean, Virginia, and then in Rhode Island. Then we went to Mississippi. And then finally, I, my wife and I spoke and I said, listen, I need to get out and do this full time because my wife said, look, you, you are spending more and more of your time and energy on this than on the Navy. So, you know, I love the Navy, don't get me wrong, but this was really what my calling was. And we moved to San Diego because more veterans leave the service in San Diego than anywhere else in the oh, U.S. is that right? 17,000 plus a year. 17,000 plus per year. Per year. Okay. So this is a hotbed for that. It is. Yeah. It is. So you were essentially going from keeping your equipment in storage units to looking at a, a, a full startup of a training facility here in San Diego. So how did that go? That was a big convoluted soup sandwich. Okay. I can imagine. So it's hard to, again, it was a big, it was a big animal to kind of defeat because we did not, we didn't have the funding to buy state of the art equipment. We didn't have the funding to hire professors. We didn't know which of the 90 different organizations provided the credentials that we felt we needed to provide our students with. So it took a lot of research and a lot of really capable and intelligent people that were very generous with their time and money to help us. And after a long, long, difficult process, we came up with... How long was long? 2008, we founded Workshops for Warriors. Okay. The first physical location was in 2010 in San Diego. Again, I was moving and I moved six times with my family in the interim. Full moves, like the whole house moves. And then 2010, we had our first facility on Market Street. That's where we started our first milling and welding training. But at that time, we didn't have any American Welding Society credentials. So it was a very 
incremental progress where we started off teaching welding, then fabrication, then machining, then CAD CAM. And it's just been this juggernaut that as we kind of rolled down, we're getting more and more support from the best companies in the world in this, the fields that we're t- teaching and training our graduates in. Let's talk a little bit about the facility here yeah. because we just had a tour and I, I got to tell you, I was very impressed and, you know, I, I felt like I was walking through my shop yep. in, in Chicago, you know, seeing all the CNC equipment and I was talking with the students and we were looking at the prints and talking about tolerances and materials and okay. tapping holes and it, it was fun. It was exciting. I mean, they're, they're doing everything that's in my blood. Oh, good. So, yeah, so you, you guys actually have two organizations here. You've got Workshop for Warriors, and then you also have um, WFW Industries, Correct. Um, which is uh, essentially a machining company that takes jobs mostly from partners that you have in the industry. So maybe like a Haas might come to you guys and say, we've got this print and we want you to machine these you know, 600 products for one of our machines. So you guys have all the latest equipment. I saw you have, you know, I don't know, there must have been about 10 Haas machines here. Again, that's one of those partnerships. So we have the best equipment thanks to Haas Automation, Amada America, right. Beaten Bender. So, I mean, these are all companies that believe in what we're doing. They entrust or donate equipment, and then they they help us find work for that equipment or to help offset the cost of training. And you guys do NIM certification, absolutely. You guys do SolidWorks certification, Master Cam. Um, and then what's the uh, the welding certification? American Welding Society certifications, ah. OSHA certifications, Snap On certifications. Yeah, you guys also train your um, your veterans to do maintenance work too. Correct, machinery exactly. repair technicians and mechatronics. Great. So you guys are really doing it all. Well, well, we only teach five things really, which is computer-aided design through SolidWorks, and they each one of our subject areas leads to a nationally recognized credential. So we teach computer-aided design through SolidWorks, and that culminates in a certified SolidWorks associate's credential or a certified SolidWorks professional credential. Okay. We teach CAM, computer manufacturing, and we teach that through MasterCAM. Right. We teach CNC milling and turning through Haas Automation. And it's the a 16-week ch- program. Six, well, they're each 16-week program. So right. we start off beginning, intermediate, advancing, journeyman level training. But the goal is how do you teach someone in a short period of time something that will culminate in a nationally recognized credential and get them into a job immediately. And then once they have that job, they can come continue going to school for a second 16-week course, get the next level certification, make more money, and then keep coming back so that at the end of four of these 16-month semesters, they're making a minimum of $25 an hour. So how does military service better equip someone to be working in the manufacturing industry? Well, how many 19-year-old kids do you know of that are in charge of a billion-dollar piece of equipment? Not many. Most of the 19-year-olds that I know are, are still children. So, you know. So that's what I'm saying. If you have this pool of talent that's second to none, and again, what people don't understand is you, I think the perception in the military is a little bit different than the reality. Very, very few people are allowed to join the U.S. military. Very, very few. Less than 1% of all applicants are allowed entry into the Department of Defense. Really? That's interesting. That is so an have, interesting statistic. Yeah, and again, 1%. Less than 1%. Less than 1%. Less than 1%. Wow. So you have the cream and the crop that are going in. They get incredible training. They show up on time every day. They're drug-free. They can communicate. They're motivated. Right. So you grab this pool of incredibly competent, you know, this incredible pool of talent. And you get them the training that they need. And they've, everyone, and they've already been in charge of very expensive equipment. Right. And they don't, if they break something, they'll tell you, we broke this. They won't try and hide it. They won't try and pawn it off. So if you have people that are already that committed to our nation, 
you know, there's a reason people like veterans. But liking a veteran is not going to make them a welder or fabricator or machinist. So you can get that veteran. You can say, hey, you, you have proven that you can serve. You've proven you can communicate. We're going to get you the the necessary training and credentials and experience to become a machinist or a welder or a fabricator. And then we're going to push you into the workforce. That's why we have a 100% placement and retention rate since 2011, which is when we started keeping statistics. Be sure to watch for the second part of this conversation with Workshops for Warriors on the next episode of Making Chips. This podcast exists to improve the manufacturing industry. We want to hear from you, the owners, managers, leaders, and engineers from the metalworking nation. What ideas do you want to share and what keeps you up at night? We want you to take something away from this podcast that you can use to improve your company, your team, and yourself. So let us know what you want to hear, and we'll see you next time on Making Chips. We can stop. Yeah, Ernan. Ernan. What was I saying? uh, Luis. So Luis is my last name. Okay. So, Hernan. Hernan. Jim tries to be too fancy with the tongue rolling. <laughs> it's not Hernan. <laughs>